All right, well, this afternoon we are going to study part two of what we started this morning. The title that I've chosen for the presentation this afternoon is Fire, Lions, and Deliverance. I'm sure that uh, you know where we're going to go uh, to study our subject for this afternoon. But before we do, we want to ask for the Lord's blessing. Never should we open the Word of God without prayer. Because the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture is the only one who can come and explain Scripture to us. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering together this afternoon to study your word. And we realize that we are insufficient when it comes to understanding your word. Without divine wisdom, we simply cannot understand what your will is for us. So we ask for divine wisdom this afternoon as we open the different passages that we're going to study. We ask for your presence through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and your angels. And I ask, Lord, that uh, in spite of the fact that we have so many people and we have an overflow room, that everyone will be comfortable and uh, be able to listen to the message that you have. And we thank you for hearing our prayer. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we were studying this morning, we notice that there are six common denominators when it comes to the time of trouble, at least six. Number one, in all of the passages you have a faithful remnant. Number two, there are enemies of the remnant. Number three, the remnant goes through a severe time of trouble because of the persecutions of the enemies of the remnant. As a result, the faith of God's people is severely tested in the time of trouble. There is a delay to God intervening to deliver his people. But finally, after the delay, God's people are delivered in every single case. Now we're going to begin our study this afternoon by going to a parable that Jesus told. It's found in Luke chapter 18 and verses 1 through 8. It's known as the parable of the unjust judge. That name I do not like. I prefer to call it the parable of the persistent widow. Because at the center of the story, of course, is the persistence of the widow with the judge. Now, we need to ask, first of all, uh, when this parable is speaking to, especially. Now, I believe the parable speaks to all people in all ages. But it has a special focus to the end of time, to the time of trouble, more specifically. You say, how do we know that? Because in the verses immediately before the parable, Jesus has been talking about the second coming. He's spoken about the days of Lot. He's spoken about the days of Noah. And then you have Luke 18, verse 1, the parable. And when the parable ends, it ends with a question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? So the parable is sandwiched in between two second coming references. So we know that it applies especially to the period of the second coming of Christ, or immediately before the second coming of Christ. Now another point that I want to emphasize is that 
There's a special word in the parable, and that is the word elect. Do you remember that when we studied Matthew 24, the great tribulation of Matthew 24, Jesus said that the time of tribulation would be cut short because of whom? Because of the elect. This parable picks up on that and refers to the elect. So we know that it refers to the generation, especially right before the second coming of Jesus. And I might say that, um, you know, there are people who talk about the final generation. You have final generation theology. I prefer to call it faithful generation theology. Because the final generation will be a faithful generation. Faithful even unto death, as we're going to notice in our study. So let's go to Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, and take a look at this parable. There are several protagonists or actors in the parable. First of all, you have a judge. Secondly, you have a widow. In the third place, the widow is crying out for deliverance. There's an adversary against the widow. There is a delay in the judge answering the pleas of the widow. But finally, the judge does justice to the widow, and she is rewarded, or she's delivered. You have all of the elements that we've spoken about, so let's go to this parable in Luke 18, verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So from the very beginning, Jesus is saying what the lesson, central lesson of the parable is. It is that we should always pray and we should never give up. We should never lose heart. We should continue coming and coming and coming and coming to the Lord in prayer. And then comes the parable that illustrates this central lesson. Saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now I'm going to say up front that the judge represents God. And you're probably thinking, how can the judge represent God if it says that the judge did not fear God nor regard man? We'll deal with that a little bit later on, but I want you to, to just remember in your mind that the judge in this parable represents God. So you have a judge. And then verse 3 says, now there was a what? A widow. Now, what does a woman represent in symbolic language in the Bible? The, a woman represents a church, right? Now, if it's a pure woman, it represents a pure church. If it is an impure woman, it represents an impure church. But what would a woman widow represent? The widow, we're going to find in the parable, had nothing absolutely to lean on. The adversary had taken everything from her. Probably what happened was that her husband died and he owed a sum of money to the adversary and the adversary took all of the money and wiped out the widow. And so basically the widow would represent the church, it's still a woman, represents the church in dire straits. A church that has lost basically everything. And so, and this will become clear as we go along. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, now that uh, verb 
came does not catch the, the nuance of the Greek verb. It's a, it's a progressive tense. It's a continuous tense. A better translation would be she kept coming. And you're going to see later on in the parable that that is really what the, uh, what the verse is saying. So it says, uh, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my what? From my adversary. Also, there's an adversary in the story too. Now, that word adversary is not a common word in the New Testament. It is the Greek word antidikon. And that word is used in another text, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, Your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So the widow represents the church in dire straits, having lost everything. And the one who has taken everything is the adversary. And the only hope of this woman who has lost everything at the hands of the adversary is for the judge to do justice to the widow. Are you catching the picture? Now, let's go to verse 4. And he would not for a while. Is there a delay? Yes. Hmm. There's a delay in the parable. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her. Now notice the continuous tense of the verb that I mentioned. Lest by her continual coming she weary me. So what kind of, uh, what kind of prayer life did this widow have? Oh, she came and came. And the, and the judge, what did he do? He kept on putting her off and putting her off. And she said, I'm not giving up. I'm going to continue coming, just like Jacob. Now this judge says, I'm going to give her what she's requesting to get her off my back. You say, how in the world can that represent God? We're going to notice that it represents God by way of contrast. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that if an unjust judge will answer the continuous pleas of this widow to get her off his back, how much more will God answer the pleas of his people because he loves them? So it's a comparison by way of contrast. In other words, the attitude of God is not the same as the attitude of the judge. Both of them delay in answering, but for different reasons. Are you following me? Now, Jesus explained who the actors of the parable represent. Let's notice verse 6. Here Jesus explains the parable. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall... God, who does the judge represent? God, the parable explicitly says it. Shall not God avenge his own elect? So who does the widow represent? The widow represents the elect. Do they go through the tribulation according to what we read this morning? Absolutely. Will, shall God not avenge his own elect who do what? Who cry out day and night to him. So, do they pray just once? No. no. They keep coming and coming and coming. They cry out to him day and night. But what does God do? He delays. Because it continues saying, 
Though he bears long with them. Actually, a better translation is, though he delays to answer them. And then, Jesus, in verse 8, says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Is there going to be deliverance for the elect? Yes. He will avenge them speedily. And then Jesus asks the question, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Now, that's, is Jesus going to find a people who have the faith that was manifested by this widow? Incidentally, um, the answer to this question is given in the book of Revelation. Here is the patience of the saints. By the way, that word patience um, is not uh, really properly translated patience. It really means perseverance. It's the Greek word hupomone. There's, a, there's another word, uh, makrothumia, which means, you know, uh, you know, very long, long suffering, it's translated in the King James Version. You know, it's a period about a long period of time. But the word uh, that is used in Revelation is, here is the perseverance of the saints, just like the widow. Here are they that keep the commandments, and what? And the faith of Jesus. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. So who is the faithful remnant in the parable? The widow. And what does the widow represent? The elect that passed through the time of trouble. We have the enemy of the widow, the adversary. Who does the adversary represent? Is Satan going to take everything away from God's people? Absolutely. Is there going to be a time of trouble for God's people? Was there a time of trouble for the widow? Are the elect going to have a severe time of trouble where we will lose everything? Yes. Will God's remnant need a faith that will not become weak during this time? Absolutely. Is God going to delay his answer to his elect? Yes, and of course you're wondering, why does God delay his answer to the elect? We're going to deal with that at the very end of our study this afternoon. But God will delay. He does not immediately answer the prayers of God's people in the time of trouble, nor does he spare them from the time of trouble. But ultimately, God will execute justice in favor of his people and against the adversary. Is that parable clear? It has all of the elements of the passage that we studied this morning. All of the six elements. It has a faithful remnant. It has an enemy or an adversary. It has a time of trouble that the widow goes through. It has faith being tested. It has a delay. And ultimately, it has the deliverance of God's people. Now I would like to transition because this was actually part of the, the sermon this morning, uh, dealing with the parable. But now we are going to deal with fire, lions, and deliverance. And basically what I would like to do as we begin the second study this afternoon is for us to take a look at the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. And you're saying, why in the world would he introduce the First Amendment to the Constitution into what he's talking about this afternoon. You will soon see. Now, 
You're aware that in Revelation chapter 13, 1 through 10, we have a beast that rises from the sea. And this beast represents the papacy. But when the papacy receives its deadly wound, another beast rises from the earth. And this beast has two horns like a lamb, but it ends up speaking like a dragon. The two horns like a lamb represent church and state, civil and religious liberty. They are the two kingdoms that Jesus recognized. What two kingdoms did Jesus recognize? Render therefore to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. So basically, these two horns like a lamb represent, uh, you know, some people say the two principles upon which the United States was built. The idea that there's a kingdom called the church, there's a kingdom called the state. They both have a right to function. Both of them have their sword. The church has the sword of the spirit. And the state has the punitive sword, according to Romans chapter 13. But each of them is to use their sword within their own sphere. The state is not to use the church, and the church is not to use the state. And when you have that idea of separation of church and state, the result is that you have civil liberties. See, when you have religious liberty, you have civil liberty. Now, what does the First Amendment have to say? The First Amendment to the Constitution contains the two horns like a lamb. The First Amendment has three clauses. The first two clauses guarantee religious liberty. The third clause guarantees civil liberty in the same amendment, the First Amendment. Now let's notice what the first clause of the First Amendment has to say. Congress shall make no law. What does no law mean? What part of no law don't you understand? <laughs> Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. It doesn't say establishment of a church or establishment of one church above another church. It says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. In other words, Congress can make no law that enforces any religious observance. The second clause is related to the first clause. It says that Congress can make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. In other words, Congress can't make any law that establishes a religious observance, and Congress cannot forbid you to practice your religion. It cannot enforce a religious observance, and it cannot forbid you from practicing your religion. And then the third clause of the First Amendment guarantees civil rights. Obviously, the framers of the Constitution realized that there's a close relationship between religious liberty and civil liberty because they're both in the same amendment. What does the rest of the First Amendment say? It says, Congress can make no law respecting the abridging of the freedom of speech. Is that a civil right? Or of the press. Is that a civil right? Or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble? Is that, a, is that a, a right? Yeah, even people who assemble at Donald Trump's rallies. <laughs> and then finally it says, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. In other words, the third clause guarantees full civil rights. The first two clauses forbid 
the Congress from making laws that establish religion or forbid the free exercise of religion. And you say, why do you bring this up? Because there are two stories in the book of Daniel that illustrate what happens when the free exercise and the establishment clauses to the Constitution are violated. Let's go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. You know, these principles that were put in our Constitution are divine principles. God guided the minds of the founding fathers, I'm convinced. Because this, had, this was unheard of in the ancient world. The, the, the United States experiment was a revolutionary, brand new experiment. Never seen before in the history of the world since sin came in. Now, do you remember Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1? It speaks about the king of the north going to try and destroy God's people. And at that time, Michael stands up to defend his people. His people go through a severe time of trouble. But at that, in that time of trouble, they are what? Delivered. delivered. That's a key word, delivered. Daniel 12 verse 1 gives us the future dimension of the two stories that we're going to study. In other words, Daniel 12 verse 1 is in the future, but the two stories that we're going to study illustrate Daniel 12 verse 1 in history. Now what story am I referring to? Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 very clearly is related to Revelation 13. You say, how do, how's that? Let me ask you, did Nebuchadnezzar for a while behave like a beast? Yeah. Did he raise up an image? Did he command everyone to worship the image? And whoever did not worship the image would be killed? Does that ring a bell when it comes to Revelation 13? And by the way, who's doing it there in Daniel? It's Babylon. Who will do it at the end of time? Spiritual Babylon. So at the end, you're not dealing with literal Israel and literal Babylon. You're dealing with spiritual Israel, God's faithful remnant, and spiritual Babylon. Because Babylon is global. Because the harlot sits on many waters, and the waters are multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. She has global control. And her name is Babylon because she has the name Babylon on her forehead. So basically, the story of Daniel 3 is going to be fulfilled in the end time with global powers and spiritual powers. No longer in a little literal valley with a, with a, a literal image, you know, in a literal fiery furnace. All of those things become symbolic of global and spiritual realities as is told in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. So now let's go to Daniel chapter 3 and take a look. And remember, what is the key word in Daniel 12, verse 1? Deliver. 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 Incidentally, do you know that the word deliver is used in only three chapters in Daniel? It's used in chapter 3, in chapter 6, and chapter 12, verse 1. This indicates that there's a close relationship between Daniel 3, Daniel 6, and Daniel 12, verse 1. It's not used in any of the other chapters of Daniel, only in those three chapters. Go with me to Daniel chapter 3 and verse 15. Daniel 3 verse 15. You know the story. The king raised up this image. He was a civil ruler, wasn't he? Was he establishing religion? Was he establishing a religious observance? And commanding everybody to obey the command that was done by the civil ruler? Absolutely. And so now he sets up the image and there are three young men that refuse to bow. So Nebuchadnezzar says, bring those guys here. And so they come. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel 3, verse 15, the king Nebuchadnezzar says to these young men, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar used the word deliver. So what, who is the God that's going to deliver you from my hands? Notice verses 16 through 18, the answer of the young men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to, there's the key word again, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will, there it is again, he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But they're not presumptuous. See, they really love the Lord and they're willing to give their all to the Lord. They don't serve the Lord for the loaves and the fishes. They don't say to God, okay, God, you keep us from dying and we'll serve you. No. Because they continue saying, but if not, if God chooses not to deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Our minds are made up. We're willing to die to be faithful to our God. Wow. So they said, God is going to deliver us. So of course, Nebuchadnezzar becomes furious. And he says, heat that furnace seven times hotter. I don't think he had a thermometer. <laughs> seven times means what? Heat the furnace to the fullest. Perfect. <laughs> In other words, perfectly hot. Totally and completely hot. So, so you can't get it any hotter. And we'll see if God, their God, is able to deliver them from my hand. And you know what the story says. In Daniel 3, verses 25 to 28, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace. And he sees four individuals walking around like they're walking in a garden. And I want you to notice what the king said. Verse 25, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like, you know, many versions say the son of the gods. But really a better translation is the son of God. And some people say, well, how did Nebuchadnezzar know what the son of God looked like? Ellen White explains that Daniel had explained what the Son of God looked like because he had appeared to him in vision. So who was the fourth person in the fiery furnace? It was Jesus. But now I want you to notice something very interesting. It says that it was the Son of God, but now let's read, continue at verse 28. Don't miss this point. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. Ooh. So who is the son of God? The angel. Which angel? Michael. Are you with me? It's Michael. 
the archangel. There's only one archangel, Jesus Christ. And archangel means chief of the angels or head of the angels. That's why it's called Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. Jesus was the commander of the angelic host. He, this text says that he was the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, but he was also the son of God. Now notice what verse 28 says again. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and, there it is again, and delivered his servants who trusted in him. So why did God deliver them? Because they had faith in him. They trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And then Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree. It's an illegitimate decree, by the way, but he was a pagan king. Now he's going to say, whoever, whoever does not recognize the god of Daniel, we're going to chop him up in pieces. <laughs> the civil ruler does not have the right to do that. Because people don't serve the true God. That person has to give an account to God, not to the civil power. But he didn't know that he was saying, he thought he was doing something really good. He thought he was doing a favor. Notice verses 28 and 29. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god therefore I make a decree that any people nation or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other god who can deliver like this what is the central theme of Daniel 3 deliverance it's not the fire ooh how am I going to be able to pass through the fire it's not that the key idea in the whole chapter is what deliverance is that the key thought in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 when the king of the north comes against God's people that's the same as Nebuchadnezzar and what is there as a result a time of trouble. Let me ask you, is there a faithful remnant in the story of Daniel 3? Yes. Do they have an enemy? Yes. Does the enemy want to kill them? Yes. Do they go through a time of trouble? Yes. You don't think facing a fiery furnace is a time of trouble, especially when they see that, you know, that it's heated seven times hotter than ever before? Is there a delay? Let me ask you, could God have given Nebuchadnezzar a heart attack? Could God have delivered them without them having been thrown into the fiery furnace? Yes, but he let them be thrown into the fiery furnace so that his glory would shine. God delayed to deliver them until they had passed through the furnace through the time of trouble. So God delayed. Was their faith severely tested? Oh, yes but they were delivered in the end. You see all of the elements in this story? Notice Hebrews 11, 33 and 34. Who are the ones that will be delivered by God? You know, Nebuchadnezzar says they trusted in God. That's what it's all about, trusting in God. 
Incidentally, this is righteousness by faith. You know, there's the idea that righteousness by faith is only the imputed righteousness of Christ. But Ellen White says that the righteousness within is testified by the righteousness without. It's a package deal. When you are truly justified by faith, your life will be different. And you know, I find it quite ironic that many Adventist theologians, even Adventist theologians, they'll say, well, you know, uh, justification is by grace through faith, and works have nothing to do with it. And then, they'll say, when they're talking about the state of the dead, they'll say, hey folks, you can ha cannot have the body without the spirit. You have to have the body with the spirit, and then you have a living being. Well, have they ever read the book of James where it says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead? So, let me use a theological term. You can be an anthropological monist and you can be a soteriological dualist. Basically what that means is that you can teach that, uh, you know, you have to have the body and the spirit together in order for, to have a living being, but, you know, you can have faith and works have nothing to do with it. James says, hey, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead, and dead faith will not save you. You're not saved by works, but your works show if you're saved. Works are the external visible side of faith, which is internal. Works are the visible side, and faith is the invisible side, if you please. It's kind of like, um, you know, when you turn on your car in the morning and put it in drive, you push on the accelerator. Which two wheels move first, the front wheels or the back wheels? One time I said, somebody, somebody says to me, well, is it front wheel drive or back wheel drive? <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. If it's back wheel drive, the minute that the back wheels push, the front wheels follow. Ellen White compared faith and works to two oars of a rowboat. Let me ask you, which oar is most important, the left oar or the right oar? If I have only the right oar, you're going to go in circles to the left. The left oar in circles to the right. In order to have a consistent religious experience, Ellen White says that we have to have faith that works along with works as James says. And that, did these young men show that they really had been justified by faith? How did they show it? By their works. In Hebrews 11, the followers of Jesus are always doing something. By faith, Moses left. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, uh, Noah built. By faith, Abraham sacrificed his son. By faith, Rahab hid the spies. They're doing something because their faith is being exhibited by their works. Notice Hebrews 11, 33 and 34. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel the prophets, 
who through faith, notice what was the key, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises. What else did they do? They stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. How did they quench the fire? By what? By faith. What if they hadn't had faith? The fire would have burned them. What if Daniel had not had faith? The lions would have eaten him. I'm not saying it. The Bible says it. They stopped the mouths of lions by faith. And they quenched the violence of fire by faith. They trusted in their God. So Daniel chapter 3 illustrates what happens when the establishment clause is violated. Was Nebuchadnezzar establishing religion? Yes. What happened as a result of establishing religion? Persecution. Persecution always comes when the civil power establishes a religious observance. But now we go to an illustration of what happens when the free exercise clause of the Constitution is violated. Daniel 6. I bet you can't guess what the key word is. Deliver. That's right. Notice what the issue is. In Daniel chapter 3, the issue is worship. Everybody agree? And God's law. Primarily the first table of the law. Because an image is raised up in their command to worship. Thou shalt not make any graven image. In Daniel 6, we have the same issue. Worship. Notice Daniel chapter 6 and verse 5. These are the enemies of Daniel. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning what? The law of his God. Is the controversy in Daniel 6 concerning the law? And we're going to see that it concerns worship as well. And so these men deceive the civil power into thinking that he's really great and he can proclaim a decree that no one can make a petition of anyone for 30 days except the king. So the king says, wow, these guys really like me. They want only people to petition me. What he doesn't know is that they are fooling him. Notice Daniel 6, 7 through 9. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Therefore King Darius signed the written decree. No one can make any request of any god for 30 days. What is happening here? Is this establishing a religious observance or is it forbidding people from practicing the free exercise of religion? It's the free exercise. You cannot petition. Not saying you have to petition him this way. It's saying you cannot petition. So it's forbidding basically Daniel to what? To pray. Notice Daniel 6 verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows closed, oh, so. wouldn't it have been easy for Daniel? I mean, talk about rubbing it in. Did Daniel know that the decree had been given? Yeah, Daniel 6 says so. 
So why didn't Daniel say, you know, I just don't want to offend people. So let's be a little politically correct here. You know, let's not ruffle their feathers. I just close the windows and I'll pray in private. He said, no way. I've got to give witness that I serve the true God. And so it says, windows open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees. Was he worshiping? Yes. Three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. And now the king realizes that he's been deceived by his advisors. And he's not going to be a happy camper. <laughs> Let's read Daniel chapter 6 and beginning with verse 14. And the king, when he heard these words, that they had found Daniel praying, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. See, there's the key word again. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God whom you now and then serve no whom you serve continually was he a man of faith and yes. continuous trust in God yes he will oh wow there's the word again he will deliver you then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, the servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to? There it is again. To deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. And now listen to this. Don't miss this point. My God sent his angels. Wow. You see the angel doing this all the way through? Jacob struggling with the angel. And who is the angel? Jesus. I have struggled with God. I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Daniel 12 verse 1 says, who is going to stand up? Michael the archangel. In Daniel 3, who was in the furnace? The son of God who was what? The angel. Who is in the lion's den? The angel. So it says in verse 22, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. He was faithful to God and to the civil power. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury was found on him. Now notice what, what is the reason. Because he what? Because he believed. The word believed means that he what? He trusted in his God. Because he trusted in his God. Now the king is also going to give a decree, which is illegitimate. 
Because you can't force people to worship a false god and you cannot force them to worship the true god. The civil power can have nothing to do with that. So in verse 25 it says, Then King Darius wrote, To all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. And then what does it say? He what? There it is again. He delivers and rescues. And he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. I think somehow the central theme of this chapter is deliverance. Does God come through? So who is the remnant in this story? Daniel. Who are the enemies? The counselors of the king. Does Daniel go through a time of trouble? You don't think him being in that, in that lion's den was a time of trouble? <laughs> Could God have delivered him before he was thrown in the, in, in, into the lion's den? Of course. Was there a delay? Yes. Was the faith of Daniel tested? Yes, but the good news is that because he trusted in his God, he was delivered. Are these stories going to be repeated again? They will be repeated in Daniel 12 verse 1. Daniel 12 verse 1 is the future dimension of Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. Did you notice that in this story, the king is forbidding the free exercise of religion? So what happens when the civil power forbids the free exercise of religion and you disobey? The result is that you lose your civil rights. And what is the greatest civil right? Life. Are you with me? Now let's go to our next example. The book of Esther. Hmm. All of these are portraits of the time of trouble. Looked at from different perspectives. What was the crisis in the days of Esther? What was it all about? The civil power had given the decree that everybody needed to bow before Haman. What was wrong with that? What does the Bible say? Don't bow before any man. You can only bow before God. So did Mordecai disobey the decree of the civil power telling him that he had to bow? Yes. He disobeyed. And so what does Haman do? Well, Haman hates his guts. And man, this guy doesn't bow. As the king commanded. See, the king is, is demanding a religious observance. The civil power. And so now Haman goes before the king. In Esther 3, verses, uh, Esther 3, verses 8 and 9, we have his argument. I want you to notice what the issue is. The issue is worship because Mordecai won't bow. But the issue is also concerning the law. It says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their what? Hmm. Their laws are different from all other people's. And they do not keep what? The king's laws. What is the law that he was referring to? The law that everybody needed to what? to bow before Mordecai, before Haman. 
So he says their laws are different from all other people's and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. They got to be wiped out. So do you have a remnant? Yes. Who is the remnant? Mordecai and the Jews. Who is the enemy? Haman. By the way, do you know something interesting? In the Bible, when religious advisors advise the king to destroy God's people, ultimately the king ends up destroying those who prepared the plot. Who ended up being eaten by the lions? The advisors. In Daniel 3, who was burnt by the fire? Those that threw them in. In the book of Esther, who dies in the gallows? Haman. Does the king get pretty mad? Did Darius get pretty mad? You have this phenomenon also in the New Testament. You remember Caiaphas, he said, it's necessary for one man to die in order to save the nations. The Romans will come and they'll destroy our nation. Well, by killing Jesus, the Romans came and destroyed the nation. In Revelation chapter 17, the, the harlot uses the kings of the earth. They're having a jolly good time, but we're told the kings will hate the harlot. This is a recurring theme in the Bible. Those who prepare a plot against God's people will die with the very weapons they, they prepared for God's people. So here we have an Esther, a faithful remnant, Mordecai. We have an enemy, Haman. Do the people go through a severe time of trouble? Notice Esther 4 verse 3. If this isn't a severe time of trouble with crying out and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It says there, and in every province... Where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great what? Morning. Great mourning among the Jews. With what? With fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So did they go through a severe time of trouble where they're crying out to the Lord for deliverance? Yes. Was their faith severely tested? Was there a delay? Study the story. Could God, have, could God have delivered them immediately? But there's a whole series of events that take place in the book of Esther. The death decree is against God's people for a long period of time. While God is working to deliver them. And they are agonizing and suffering during this period. But let me ask you, did God finally intervene to deliver his people? Absolutely. So once again, you have, and Ellen White says that the decree that was given in the days of Esther is very similar to the decree that will be given finally against God's people. Because in the decree that was given against the Jews, there was a specific date in the decree. And Ellen White says that there will be a specific date in the decree at the end of time. And when that date arrives, God's people can be killed. There's a very close parallel. And Esther, of course, is a symbol of Christ because she's the intercessor. She's the defender of God's people who rises in their time of trouble to go before the king and to turn the tables so that God's people can be delivered. But the greatest example of the time of trouble is in the story of Jesus. The most beautiful portrait of these six points 
that we've discussed is the experience of Jesus. Jesus was the faithful remnant. At the end of his life, did he have enemies that wanted to finish him off? I'll mention just a few. Satan, Judas, Caiaphas, the elders, the priests, and they all influenced the multitudes to cry out for the crucifixion of Jesus. Was the faith of Jesus severely tested during this period? Matthew 26, verse 37, Jesus says to his disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded with his father. He begged his father. Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it be so. I don't know whether I can go through with this. The load of sin is too great. I'm afraid that I'll never see your face again, my father. If you can take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And he prayed that prayer three times as he sweated drops of blood. Did he go through a severe period of trouble and anguish? He most certainly did. Was his faith severely tested? Yes, in fact, on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the load of sin that he was bearing. Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, describes the perseverant faith of Jesus in his suffering. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, who in the days of his flesh, this is happening in Gethsemane, when he had offered up what? Prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. When was Jesus, when was the prayer of Jesus heard? Was it heard immediately? Did the Father intervene to deliver Jesus immediately? Did he go through the time of trouble? He most certainly did. His faith was severely tested. In fact, let me read you from Desire of Ages 756. You know, we depend too much on feelings. If Jesus had depended on his feelings, he would have failed. He felt separated from his father. And yet he set his feelings aside and he said, I'll simply trust what God says. He has said that if I'm faithful, he will deliver me from death. And I trust what he says, even though everything says that I'm never going to see my father's face ever again. He set his feelings aside and trusted in the promises of his father. That's what's going to have to happen with God's people in the time of trouble. Desire of Ages 756, Ellen White explains, amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his Father's acceptance given to him up to this point. He was acquainted with the character of his Father. He understood his justice his mercy and his great love. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, 
he committed himself to God, the sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was the victor. How did Jesus gain the victory in the midst of the time of trouble? By what? Is that true of all the other stories that we've noticed? By the way, this is the faith of Jesus in the third angel's message. So there was a delay in the case of Jesus, right? The Father didn't answer the prayers of Jesus immediately. In fact, was Jesus delivered from death? Yeah, but was after a delay, after he died. <laughs> when was Jesus delivered? He was delivered very early on the first day of the week. Had his father heard him? By the way, the last saying of Jesus on the cross was, was what? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Do you know what he was saying? He was saying, Father, I'm laying my life into your hands. Preserve it. Because you promised that if I was faithful, you are going to call me from the grave. Into your hands I commend my spirit. So who called him when he resurrected from the dead? Who delivered him from the grave? His father. You say, now wait a minute. John chapter 10 says, Jesus says, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. John 10, 17 and 18. Well, first of all, the translation power is a very bad translation. There's a word for power. It's dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. But the word is not dunamis there. The word is exousia, which means authority. Jesus is saying, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. But most people don't read the last sentence of John 10 verse 18 where Jesus says, this command I have received from my Father. He says, I have received from my Father the command to lay down my life and He will give me permission to take it up again. And so very early on the first day of the week, two angels descend from heaven. One of them rolls away the stone and sits on the stone. The other angel stands before the grave. And he says, O thou son of God, thy father calls thee. Remember he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now he says, your father's calling you. He's calling you to deliver you. And lo and behold, it comes out Jesus who had already unwrapped himself. And all of his linens were very carefully folded because he was he was the person of order the first law of heaven order that's why we need to respect God's order in the church as well and Jesus comes forth from the grave and he says I am the resurrection and the life the soldiers fell like they were dead the demons fled and Jesus was delivered from the tomb. Listen to this statement from Ellen White, youth instructor, May 2, 1901. He who died for the sins of the world was to remain in the tomb for the allotted time. He was in that stony prison house as a prisoner of divine justice. And he was responsible to the king of the universe. He was bearing the sins of the world and his 
Father only could release him. So when the Father called Jesus, Jesus came out of the tomb by the life that was within himself. But it was his Father who told him that he could take up his life. He says, this command I received from my Father. Are God's people going to go through a similar experience that Jesus went through? Let me read you this remarkable statement from the pen of Ellen White. It's in Review and Herald, April 14, 1896. We are going to repeat the story of Jesus. This is an amazing statement. She says, the forces of the powers of darkness will unite with human agents who have given themselves unto the control of Satan. And now listen. The same and the same scenes that were exhibited at the trial, rejection, and crucifixion of Christ will be revived. So how are we going to overcome? When the whole world is against God's people. And God's people have lost everything. By the way, Jesus even lost the clothes that were on him. He hung naked on the cross. Not even his clothing. And yet Jesus, like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Amazing. She continues saying, now, can you imagine what it's going to be like to live in this world where Satan has full control of the finally impenitent? It's, it's hard to, to conceive of what this world, it's going to be a jungle. And if Michael doesn't stand up to defend his people, there would be no one left. She writes this. The same scenes that were exhibited at the trial, rejection, and crucifixion of Christ will be revived. Through yielding to satanic influences, men will be merged into fiends. Do you know what a fiend is? It's a demon. Men will be, uh, will be formed, uh, merged into demons. And those who were created in the image of God who were formed to honor and glorify their creator will become the habitation of dragons and Satan will see in an apostate race his masterpiece of evil men who reflect his own image so there will be two groups those who reflect the image of Christ and those who reflect the image of Satan what group will we be in? That's the big question. You remember Jesus asked the question at the end of the parable. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? I'm thankful that that question is answered in Revelation. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. But now we need to answer one question as we draw this to a close. Why does God allow his people to go through the final tribulation such as never has been seen in the history of the world? Why does God allow them to go through this and delay in delivering them? I believe the answer to this question is found in our last example. The story of the book of Job. Why does God allow his people to go through the time of trouble? Why the delay? If God loves them, how can he see them 
with this excruciating anguish going through the time of trouble. The book of Job explains the reason why. This is a magnificent book, profound book. Really what it is is a trial. All, it's filled with legal language, the book of Job. In fact, at the very beginning of the book, we see that it's a legal story. Because we're told that the sons of God, which are the representatives of the worlds that never sinned, they come to present themselves before the Lord. God has this business session in heaven. And there are representatives from all of the universe that are in the heavenly council. And they come to present themselves before the Lord. And among that, those who came was Satan. And God asked him, well, where do you come from? He says, well, from going around the earth, from supervising my territory. Why did the devil claim this earth as his, as his realm? Because he had stolen the position of who? Of Adam. If Adam had been faithful, he would have been there. Well, there would have not been the agenda that there was. <laughs> but Adam should have been there. And so God now looks at Satan, the, the adversary. So you have an adversary in this story. You have a remnant too, right? You have a time of trouble, right? The faith of Job is tested, right? There's a delay, right? And Job is delivered, right? <laughs> and so God says, have you seen my servant Job? <laughs> he lives in your territory, but he's mine. A righteous man eschews evil, blameless, and he lives on the planet where you claim to be the leader. The devil says, ha, oh, he serves you for the loaves and the fishes. For those who are Hispanics here, you know, pare de sufrir. There's a denomination, this is a prosperity gospel, you know. You know, just plant a seed in my ministry and you know you'll be rich. So what happens when you're not rich? So anyway, the devil says to God, ha, of course he serves you. Remember, the devil is saying this before all the representatives of the universe. That's a jury. You haven't let me do anything with him. You put a hedge around him. You protect everything. You protect his family, his possessions, everything. But if you allowed me to take those things, he would curse you to your face. What if God had said, you liar, don't believe what he's saying. The heavenly jury would have said, what's God afraid of? Hmm. So God says, oh yeah, I know my servant. He doesn't serve me for the loaves and the fishes. Take whatever you want from him. So the devil goes out and he wipes him out. There you have the widow. <laughs> wipes him out. He loses homes. He loses all of his children. He loses all of beasts, all of his servants. And the story tells us that he says, God has given and God has taken away. He was half right. God had given, but God had not taken away. He did not understand that. That's the whole reason for, for his uh, dilemma. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And the heavenly jury says, God is right. He doesn't serve God for the loaves of fishes. He serves God because he trusts him and he loves him, even in the bad times. Meanwhile, the sons of God had returned to their planets. And then it says in chapter 2 that again, 
the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, which means that they might, must have left after the first meeting. And so now, God says with pride, he says, have you seen my servant Job? That even though you turn me against him, he still pre has his integrity. Ha! The devil says. He's saying it before the witnesses of the entire universe. Oh, of course he serves you. You didn't let me touch him. Anybody will be willing to give up what they've got, their stuff, but if you let me touch him, he would curse you to your face. God could have said to the heavenly jury, ah, don't pay any attention to him. He just, he's a bitter individual. What would the heavenly beings have thought? Yeah, well, God did, didn't allow him to touch Job. Maybe, maybe the adversary is right. So God says, go for it. Do anything you want to him, only I won't let you kill him. Because if he killed him, the trial was over. So the devil goes out and he afflicts Job with a terrible disease. It was so terrible that he would take a pot shirt to scratch himself. He was disfigured. So his wife now turns against him. Curse God and die! He's lost his health. Now he's lost the support of his wife. And three friends come to console him. <laughs> his three best friends, they say, oh, let's go see. We've heard these calamities that have fallen upon Job. Let's go, let's go there and comfort him. And they become his accusers. And then from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 38, Job is crying out to God. You can read it. He's saying, why have you turned against me too? If I could go before your judgment seat, that's what he says, I would present my case and you would see that I'm right. And so he cries out from chapter 3 to chapter 38. Was there a delay? Yes, there was a long delay. Finally, in chapter 38, God says, I've heard enough, Job. Now you be quiet, and I'm going to talk. And then God describes his power in the creation of the world. Chapter 41, he speaks about Leviathan, who is symbolic of the devil. And suddenly it dawns on Job. Job says, now I know who's causing all my problems. Because in his culture, Leviathan was known. It was a seven-headed monster. By the way, does the Bible corroborate the idea that there's a seven-headed monster in Revelation 12 who is called the devil and Satan? What was the name of the enemy in the book of Job? Satan. Now we find that the seven-headed dragon is called that ancient serpent, the devil and Satan. Isaiah 20, 27 verse 1 says that Leviathan is the twisted serpent. He's the dragon that lives in the sea. So now Job says, now I know who's been causing all my problems. So then in chapter 42 he says, sorry Lord, I even, I even demanded and needed answers from you. I'd heard about you, but now my eyes understand you. And he was rewarded with twice as much as what he had before. He was delivered from his enemy. Why will God allow the faithful generation to go through the time of trouble? Because the devil says, all of these people, they serve you because you're good to them. 
because they're Seventh-day Adventists, because of all the loaves and the fishes. You give them Loma Linda health. They live to be centurions because of all their health principles. You know, you've blessed their institutions. You've, you've blessed their organization. You, you've blessed them. And you haven't allowed me to have free access to them. But if you allowed me to have free access to them, not one of them would remain faithful to you. And God is going to say, do that to an entire generation and you'll see that you're wrong. The faithful generation, folks, will vindicate the character of God before the universe and will shut the devil's mouth. It will be shown that God's people serve him because they love him. And they're willing to die in order to be faithful to God. They will say like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I know that my Redeemer lives. But there's a second reason why God will allow his people to go through the time of trouble. Not only to vindicate God's character before the universe, but also to refine and purify their character and consume all of their earthliness. God will allow his people to go through the time of trouble so that there's nothing that binds us to this world. What is it that's binding us to this world? Is our house? Is it made of gold? Is it, a, is it our brand new car? Does it fly? <laughs> There's nothing in this world that even compares to what God has prepared for those who love him. So God is going to allow his people to go through the time of trouble to consume all earthliness. He's going to allow his people to go through the furnace of fire to cleanse their characters and to prepare them for heaven. Job understood this. Job 23 verse 10 he said when God has tried me I shall come forth as gold. Amen. Isaiah 48 verse 10 tells us God is speaking behold I have refined you but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. You know we should be thankful when we suffer. We should be thankful when trials come because trials help our faith to grow and our trust in God to grow. Let me read you just a couple of statements from Ellen White about those who will go through the time of trouble. Great Controversy 619 and 620, she says, their faith does not fail because their prayers are not immediately answered. Sometimes do you struggle in prayer and do you think God doesn't answer your prayers? Thing is, we think that God can answer yes or no, but God can also answer wait. Because he knows when the right time is. He will not allow us to be tempted more than we can resist. So she says, the faith of the faithful generation does not fail because their prayers are not immediately answered. Though suffering the keenest anxiety, terror, and distress, they do not cease their intercessions. They lay hold of the strength of God as Jacob laid hold of the angel. And the language of their soul is, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. On page 621, Ellen White is talking about the furnace. 
Do you think there was anything in the world that could shake the faith of the three young men after they came forth from the furnace? That was the ultimate test. She's speaking about this end time faithful generation. She says, their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem about to consume them. But the refiner will bring them forth as gold tried in the fire. God's love for his children during the period of their severest trial is as strong and tender as in the days of their sunniest prosperity. But it is needful for them to be placed in the furnace of fire. A reference to Daniel 3. Their earthliness must be consumed that the image of Christ may be perfectly reflected. So be thankful when you go through the furnace of affliction. Don't blame God. Don't make God look bad. Make God look good. And understand that if God allows it, there's a reason. Because when we come forth from the furnace, we come stro become stronger than before we went into the furnace. Now one final point that I want to make. We will never be faithful to God when our life is at risk unless we have learned to be faithful to God in the small things of life. Small things now. Jesus expressed it this way, he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. And he who is unfaithful in little will be unfaithful in much. Jeremiah expressed it in chapter 12 and verse 5. He said, if you ran with men and you got tired, how do you think you're going to run with the horses? Now is the time when we need to be faithful in the smallest duties, faithful to God. In the smallest things, things that people say, ah, these are not things important. You know, music. How is that important? Going to the theater, how is that important? You know, the issue of dress and adornment, how is that important? Eating and drinking, how is that important? And people finally they say, all those things are insignificant. All you need to do is believe and you will be saved, you and your house. Passing those small tests is the way that we'll be prepared, we will be prepared for the large tests. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Job had been faithful to God in the days of his sunniest prosperity. The Bible says that he had worship every day with his children. He prayed for his children. And you read chapter 29, it says he was a charitable person. He gave much of his possessions to help those who were in need. He was consecrated to God in the times of prosperity. Therefore, when times of adversity came, he knew that even though these things were happening to him, God loved him, and he was not going to fail his God. That is the way the final generation, the faithful generation will be. They are those in Revelation 17, verse 14, where it says that those who are faithful are called, chosen, and faithful. And I pray to God that here, not only among those who are gathered here, but in all of the 
realm of Loma Linda University, La Sierra University, that God will have a faithful generation of people who will be faithful to God, faithful to His Word, faithful in their witness, no matter what might come. Because it'll be a beautiful thing for the universe to behold that God's people serve Him out of pure love and not self-interest. Is that the kind of generation you want to be? Do you want to stand? Do you want to take a stand and say, that's the generation, I want to belong to that generation. I want to be part of that faithful generation. If that's what you want, I'm going to pray for you. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we've studied these magnificent stories from your word. We understand that they're not mere history. They're actually stories that illustrate the experience of your people at the end of time. Father, we want to be members of that faithful generation. We cannot do it on our own. We're weak. We're sinful. But with you, we can do all things. I ask, Lord, that you will come into our minds, into our hearts, that you will possess our being that we might realize the times that we're living in, the last moments of time. Help us to wake up from our slumber, Lord, and to be faithful to you in the daily matters of life, in the small things of life. I ask, Lord, that you will bless each one of those who are gathered here, those who will be listening on Audioverse, those who will be watching these presentations. I ask, Lord, that you will inspire them to be faithful to you. We thank you, Father, for having been with us. And we thank you for coming close to us and answering our prayer. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org